see you guys this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the pastor who oversees most of the preaching around these parts. And if we haven't met, I would love to connect with you after the service if you stay around or maybe in the coming weeks uh, as we continue to work our way through this sermon series. Uh, speaking of, uh, if you are new, this morning brings us right up to the, the halfway point of of a summer walk through the seven deadly sins as portrayed through the book of Proverbs. It's a terrible sermon series if you wanna grow a church on the other side of COVID, by the way. Um, but we just don't care. This is kind of our, our MO. This is what we, we do. We try to get after hard things as much as uh, the, uh, the things that are endearing in scripture to us. And so we are, we're walking through the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony and lust. Some of uh, Lady Folly's most well-known nicknames going back to the first week in this series as we looked at uh, the poem in Proverbs chapter nine. As I've said, each and every week of this series, there are undoubtedly more than seven sins. Uh, you can go to any of Paul's lists in the New Testament uh, and you'll see very quickly that that's true. Uh, but those that have come to uh, be known as the seven deadly sins are uh, undoubtedly the most prevalent. They're kind of a root system of sorts out of which a number of other sins arise. And so we wanna look at these seven uh, in order to help us understand what it is to, to fight to put sin to death. John Owen shared this quote several times now uh, throughout the course of uh, these first few weeks of this series. He says, be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no neutrality in this war, so to speak. That yes, uh, the victory's already been won in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about that. We, we just sang of that together as the church. And yet Jesus not only died to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. Which is why Paul would talk this way, Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit who indwells you and I as Christians, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so yes, this, this series is about putting sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, it's about so much more than that. Uh, we're not simply talking about some sort of fight for morality, but a fight for joy. Another quote that I've shared from the beginning to try to frame this thing out Marshall Siegel, in the book Killjoys, which is something of a commentary on the seven deadly sins, he says, Christianity is not merely or even mainly about correcting your bad habits, but about satisfying and fulfilling you in the deepest way possible, and therefore making God look as great as he is. Our hearts, he says, were designed to enjoy a full and forever happiness, not the pitiful temporary pleasures for which we're too prone to settle. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust, they're, they're all woefully inadequate substitutes, he says, for the wonder, beauty, and affection of God. As first hopes or dreams or loves, they are killjoys by comparison to Christ. They will rob you, not ravish you. They will numb you, not heal you. They will slaughter you, not save you. He goes on, the map inscribed on our sinful soul will not lead any of us to truth, glory, or happiness. It will lead us in circles of almost and good enough until it sits by our hospice bed, holding our confused, disappointed, and hopeless hand as we drift off into hell. We have to wake up, he says, scrap the old map, grab the compass pointing true north, trusting that the God who formed our hearts knows how to fill them. We have to fight for joy in the right places. 
This series, it's about doing everything we possibly can to pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in in the God who designed us to be happy in him. As we fight to, to turn from the temptress on the one hand, whichever of her seven deadly personas allures us most, but, but also to say yes to the one who's, who set the table with a spread that offers us everything we need to experience true and lasting joy. Up to this point, going back to the last couple of weeks, we've covered two of the seven, namely pride and sloth. If those are your vices, you probably don't wanna go back and, and listen to the podcast and you're probably glad you missed the last two weeks. Pride being the, the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven, the, the sin that uh, led our first parents down the, the fallen path of self-determination, got us kicked out of the garden, a serious offense in the eyes of God because it, in the words of John Stott, contends for supremacy with God himself as opposed to humility, which offers us the blessing of seeing ourselves rightly in this fight for happiness, true freedom from the bondage to our fragile human egos, being fixated on ourselves, the blessing of seeing God rightly, the joy that comes in basking in his glory rather than chasing after our own. And then there's sloth, the truest expression of what it means to waste our lives to truly miss out on on what we were made for as God's priest, kings, and queens, going back to some of that imagery of last week, as opposed to diligence, this idea of abounding in the work of the Lord, trusting that our labor is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. God inviting us, exhorting us even to spend and be spent for his glory, for the sake of our own joy, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the church, as we embrace the, use that imagery of, of one of those word pictures from last week, the God-glorifying, spirit-empowered disposition of the ant, knowing that, that not one act of gospel-formed labor for any one of us will have been an exercise in futility when all is said and done. It will have all counted. It will have all mattered. This morning, we jump into the third of Lady Folly's alluring personas, the temptress who goes by the name of, drumroll please, avarice or greed. I invite you now to open up your Bible uh, to Proverbs 23, verses four and five. If you don't have a Bible, everything will be up on the screen behind me. You'll be able to track with where we're going just by following the slides behind me. And that includes any quotes from Proverbs or other parts of the Bible or any sort of commentary quotes that we'll look at this morning. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll dive into God's word together. Lord, as we work through these seven vices by the week, and I think we'll see it again this morning, there's this, there's this reality that these are not as simplistic as perhaps we see them in our, in our minds. They're multifaceted, and with that multifaceted reality um, attached to them, Uh, You reveal to us, Lord, that none of us is truly exempt from any of the seven in exploring them. Um, And and walking away, I pray, grateful for your cross. And secondly, trusting, Holy Spirit, uh, your uh, indwelling power to help us wage war against these things as those who have trusted in Christ's finished work, that you might get the glory, that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ moving more toward our glorified state, Lord. I pray that 
all of these things would, would come together for us this morning, that we would walk away happy in Christ for all, all Jesus that you've accomplished for us, and that, that we would step out ready to wage war against the, the vice, the sin of greed, and not just that, but that we would move further away from that table toward a seat at the table of contentment and sacrificial generosity, which is truly the better table. And so, Spirit of God, would you do that great work that, that I can't do, that none of us in this room can do? We're desperate for you, so would you move in power in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, I pray. Amen. So th- this morning, we're, we're not actually gonna start with the passage that I just had you open up to, so, so mark that, because I need to lay some groundwork for where we're going this morning uh, we'll get there soon enough, Proverbs 23. But first, I just wanna start by throwing out a few disclaimers as we dive into the, the topic of greed and with it, the topic of money and possessions. For one, there is no way that we can possibly cover an entire theology of money this morning as laid out in the scriptures. Uh, the, the book of Proverbs alone speaks to a number of dangers, not just greed, uh, associated with money and possessions. So in the book of Proverbs, you get Uh, Categories like deceitful gain, cutting corners, living above our means, poor planning, the extremes of of prosperity and poverty, overestimating money's value, false security. That's just to name a few of, of the categories that we could get into this morning, and yet our aim is simply to touch on the Proverbs having to do with greed. And and with that, there aren't many which means that we're gonna leave some meat on the bone uh, this morning as it pertains to the systematic and biblical theology of money and possessions. Yes, you you probably will walk away with questions there. Secondly, and and you heard me pray something of, of this essence just a minute ago, greed is a vice that is absolutely no respecter of persons, a danger to both the haves and the have nots. Brian Hedges in his book, Hit List, taking aim at the seven deadly sins, he says, Scripture locates the problem of greed in the inordinate affections of our hearts rather than in money or possessions per se. This means you can have a greed problem even if you don't have a lot of money. The issue is not what you possess, but what possesses you. In other words, this is a sermon for all of us, myself included, as we all face the danger of being possessed by possessions. Lastly, this is one of the most Challenging topics of all because of the stigma attached to money in the life and teaching of the local church. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Some of us uh, along the way, probably many of us, have uh, been a part of experiences where church leaders have sought to motivate us with something other than the gospel as it pertains to stewardship. It oftentimes happens when the leadership of a church leads out of panic We gotta make budget, so now let's run to other motivators like guilt and shame to try to to bring the money in to make these things happen so that the, the one thing that can actually compel sacrificial generosity, the gospel, gets abandoned. And with that, the word money becomes a a trigger word that causes us to to bristle, to put up our defenses. And so we, we need the Holy Spirit desperately to do what none of us can do, what only he can do in overcoming not only our faulty categories, uh, but also uh, softening of our, our, our bristling hearts. We need that too, so that we can not only put the sin of greed to death, but that we can know the joy of sitting at that better table of contentment and sacrificial generosity. 
Let me just start here in addressing the topic of greed. I think, I think it's important that we begin with an understanding of the difference between ownership and stewardship. And some of you are already tracking with where I'm going. This will just be a refresher or a yes and amen for you. Uh, Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. In other words, everything you and I possess is a gracious gift from God. It's a blessing given from him. He owns everything. He allows us to steward uh, that with which he entrusts us for his glory. Psalm 24 verse one makes this crystal clear. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist says, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Or how about Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12? For every beast of the forest, God says, is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. In other words, the deed for creation, it's in God's name, not any of ours. That you and I, we're, we're not owners, we're stewards, having been put in charge of some things that are ultimately God's. Job understood this when uh, his children and possessions were taken from him, and he responded, Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul understood this when he said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. That all that we have ultimately belongs to God, good gifts we've been given to steward for his glory. Our time, and that doesn't just mean in moments like these, though people who live a compartmentalized Christianity would disagree, not just the Lord's day, it's every decision that we make with our time. It matters in the eyes of God. Our money, and that doesn't just mean 10%. God cares what we do with the other 90. Same thing goes with our spouses, our kids, our homes, etc. The fact that God invites us to steward a little bit of his everything is an incredibly great privilege. It's what he had in mind from the very establishment of creation. In other words, money and possessions are, are not the problem. We are. The trouble is that, that the sinful human heart doesn't want to embrace the privilege of stewarding, stewarding a little bit of God's everything for his glory. We bind to a, a number of lies. The, the lie that money and possessions can take away the emptiness, like the author of Ecclesiastes. The lie that they can give us meaning, significance, identity, the lie that they can provide us with true and lasting security. Money's one of those things that's pretty high up there on the list of things that, that man deifies, which helps to make sense of why Jesus told more parables about money than any other topic. That's why the book of Proverbs includes a ton of verses that address the topic of money from a variety of angles. Again, we, we could establish a sermon series on the topic of money as seen just in this book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, and that topic alone could carry us through an entire summer. But, but this morning's focus, again, it's singular as our aim is to give consideration to this temptress known as greed. A couple of definitions from men both living and dead. I'm pretty sure this might be the only time that I'll ever quote Thomas Aquinas and John Piper on the same sermon slide. Aquinas says, greed is the desire for profit which knows no limit. Piper defines it as desiring something so much uh, you lose your contentment in God. Simply put, 
The aim of greed is to get what we don't have and to keep what we do have. As it pertains to getting what we don't have, I've shared this quote before, John D. Rockefeller. At one point, the richest man in the world was once asked, how much money is enough money? His response, just a little bit more. It's not only a root of all kinds of evils, 1 Timothy 6, 10, but it's a grasping at smoke, elusive and fleeting. Here's where I wanna get into Proverbs 23, verses four and five, which says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. The author of Proverbs is not saying that we shouldn't make a living. That would go against everything that we talked about last week as we looked at this idea of sloth. Rather, he's saying that we shouldn't toil in the pursuit of riches. That we shouldn't embrace the sentiment of Malcolm Forbes, the man who once said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Because the truth is, according to scripture, he who dies with the most toys dies and his toys become someone else's toys. A man's nest egg, to use this imagery in Proverbs 23, a man's nest egg hatching and sprouting wings and soaring off into the sky, at best landing in the hands of another, hopefully a loved one. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says it this way, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. But if we love money, we'll never be satisfied with it. The more we obtain, the more we'll want. We'll never truly find ourselves happy in that empty chase, that grasping at smoke, vanity of vanities. And not only will that empty chase hurt us personally, but it'll also hurt those we proclaim to love dearest. Which is why Proverbs 15, 27 would say, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Right? We've all heard stories, and maybe there are some represented in this very room this morning, of people who work themselves to death in the pursuit of greater wealth and possessions only to lose their marriages along the way only to, to have their kids years down the road say, I never knew you, mom. I never knew you, dad. Right? That empty chase of greed, it can kill us personally and it can kill those we proclaim to love the most. And then there's the matter of not only obtaining what we don't have, but clinging to what we do have, trying to hold on to it with all our might. Proverbs 11, 24 through 26 says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Proverbs 28, 22 says it this way, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. That Greed is just as much about hoarding as it is about accumulating. These passages from Proverbs emphasizing the principle of gaining to lose and losing to gain. So that the author of Proverbs says there's suffering that comes through withholding. There's curse through holding back in generosity. 
On the flip side, there's a growing richer through freely giving. There's a being enriched by blessing other people. Something that that only truly makes sense through the lens of the gospel. If I could just make a beeline to the cross, Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Or as the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, here it is, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of the the seed of the gospel, going back to our study of Luke, sown among thorns, the one for whom uh, the the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the word. That, That money can bring temporary relief as a functional savior, a functional deliverer, but money nor the love of it can can save from the day of wrath. The Old New Testament both say it. Only Christ to be trusted more than riches. Proverbs 28, 25 says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Notice the the contrast there, that trusting in the Lord, the second part of that proverb, is the alternative to greed, the first part of that proverb. A trust that we know as we move forward through the scriptures into the New Testament is born out of the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's why Paul could say 2 Corinthians 8, 9, one of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the economy of God. It's the economy of the gospel. Jesus didn't give a tithe of himself. He gave all of himself. He became poor so that by his poverty, you and I might become rich, taking on the form of a peasant in an act of sacrificial love, setting aside the privilege of divine glory, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that he might live the perfect life of contentment and sacrificial generosity in our place, only then to bear the sins of our greed in his body on the tree. Counted greedy so that you and I, the greedy, might be counted generous and content in the eyes of God. Unbelievable. Jesus paid it all. In our place, condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. None of it our own doing. We didn't earn that. God did it. Which is why Paul would say, uh, Ephesians 2, 7, It's the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a king. If you're not a Christian, and and I understand this would be strong language to hear, but according to the scriptures, you're forsaking the greatest riches in all of the universe, including the great treasure of the triune God himself. Jesus says it this way, In Luke chapter nine, verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
And, he, and here's that, that language we looked at earlier of losing to gain and gaining to lose. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Again, Christianity is about losing that we might gain, abandoning broken cisterns, empty wells that we might drink at the true fount of everlasting joy. It's the only way to win in the end, not some silly chase after more toys. It's the only path to true eternal happiness. So that if you're not a Christian, my, my exhortation is simple. It's to trust in Jesus, to turn to Jesus. Again, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And if you are a Christian, again, it's all about trust. That's the alternative to greed. And trust, as many of us know, it's not a one-time thing in the life of a Christ follower. The author of Hebrews says, chapter 13, verse five, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the more we have, the safer we feel. The bigger the net, the less terrifying the fall, right? The love of money ultimately revealing a lack of trust in the Lord, a lack of trust in him for identity and a lack of trust in him for security. The author of Hebrews says, that's not a good table to sit at. That's no way to live. That kind of approach cannot and will not bring satisfaction nor the security we want or, or feel as though we need. But again, rather than owning money, we find ourselves owned by money when we live that way. Rather than owning possessions, we find ourselves owned by possessions. Only the gospel addresses both our struggles with identity and security. Notice the author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have for because here's why you can do that. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Only the gospel says you're a child of God, identity, and he will never abandon you, security. It's out of that truth, the gospel truth, that contentment and sacrificial generosity could possibly be birthed. The first of which contentment you see in the life of the apostle Paul in Philippians 4 where he says, verses 11 through 13, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, and don't you want something of, of the essence of this for your life? Paul says, my contentment, not situational. It's not that if I have a little more, I'll be content. Contentment's not about having more for me, Paul says. It's not that if I have a little less, I'll be content. It's not about having less, Paul says. It's that no matter what I have, Christ enables me to be content. And if all I have is Christ, I have all I'll ever need. Jeremiah Burroughs, one of the Puritan writers, in his work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says, contentment is that sweet, 
inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I think this morning's topic brings us face to face with the question, is Jesus truly enough? Or is he simply a stepping stone to something greater? Contentment is is born out of a, a functional trust in a sufficient Christ, would be one way to say it. Let me say that again. Contentment is born out of a functional trust in a sufficient Christ. But not only does the gospel fan into flame contentment, you get a two for one here. You abandon greed, you get doubly blessed. Because another outworking of turning from that empty, broken cistern and turning to the better, the better well, so to speak, is this beautiful thing called sacrificial generosity. And the gospel bringing us face to face with the sacrificial generosity of God toward us as recipients of so many blessings in Christ. I mean, what more motivation do we need in compelling us to give sacrificially and, and cheerfully than the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us in Jesus? We've talked about this before. It's the story of Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector who came face to face with the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. What did he do in response to such grace? Something that would seem over the top for many of us. He gave away half of his possessions to the poor and used the remaining half to pay back those whom he had defrauded four times the amount he took from them. Talk about repentance. Kent Hughes, in describing the story of Zacchaeus, he says, by grace, the little man had become immense. Acceptance by God had given the tax collector what he had vainly sought in the accumulation of wealth, namely wholeness and satisfaction. He went in, mastered by the passion to get. He left, mastered by the passion to give. Something had happened, Hughes says, inside that house with Jesus. I would present the question for each and every one of us. Have you been inside that, that house, so to speak? Have you had that encounter with Jesus Christ? The more we soak in the beauty and wonder of the the good news of the self-giving Jesus, the more we will be motivated to die to greed and to live contentedly and generously for the glory of God. To declare, salvation has come to my house, like Zacchaeus declared, how can I not be generous? That as the Macedonians gave out of their poverty, 2 Corinthians 8, so we, many of us, give out of our affluence, and we do so because of grace. John 1, 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John Piper says it this way, giving some directional language to it all. He says, grace comes down, joy rises up, and generosity flows out. That's the gospel. It's how it works. It's what it does. That, that similar to last week, the church doesn't need more opportunities The church needs more beggars, more hearts captivated by the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ, begging earnestly for the favor like the Macedonians of sacrificing their lives, their money, their possessions for the sake of the gospel. Please let me serve. Please let me give. Please let me spend and be spent. Charles Spurgeon once prayed, 
And this has become one of my own prayers coming out of time of study this week. He says, oh my Lord, let me not merely talk thus and pretend to despise earthly treasure when all the while I am hunting after it. But grant me, he says, grace to live above these things, never setting my heart upon them, nor caring whether I have them or have them not. He goes on, but exercising all my energy in pleasing thee and in gaining those things which thou dost hold in esteem. What are those things? He goes on to pray, give me, I pray thee, the riches of thy grace that I may at last attain to the riches of thy glory through Christ Jesus. That's the real treasure, the grace and glory of God. It's the better table, table of wisdom, the table of contentment and sacrificial generosity. My prayer is that, that it would increasingly be the table at which we find ourselves seated as we fix our eyes on our good, glorious, and gracious Savior and King. In a moment, we, we get an opportunity, as we do each and every week, to, to worship this God of grace, this God of glory, to fall before him uh, in, in worship with our song, our collective song, to declare his grace in our lives, to declare that grace has come down, to allow joy to then go up as we sing together, to come before him in these moments to come and to ask him, how do you want generosity to go out, Lord? What do you, what do you, what do you want that to look like in my own life? Whether it be repenting of compartmentalized Christianity that's made time simply about nothing more than the Lord's Day, maybe a little window with a community group, or perhaps money as this sort of 10% principle as opposed to acknowledging that God owns it all and we've been called to steward 100% of it for his glory. I don't know what that looks like for you. In the organized sense of, of, of the, the church, in the organic sense of, of how to leverage your home for the gospel, your vehicle for the gospel, the many other things that you possess. I have no idea what the Lord might want to do there. But I pray that, and I trust that he'll meet us in the remainder of our time this morning and give us some indication of what, what he's calling us to. Because again, yes, we run, we make a beeline for the cross and say, hallelujah, no longer condemned because of Jesus, not counted greedy, but counted content and, and sacrificially generous in the eyes of God because of who Christ is and what he's done, hallelujah. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells and changes us as an outworking of the cross in conforming us more to the image, Romans 8, of the very one who died for us. And so I, I pray and trust that the Spirit of God will move greatly in these moments together. We're also gonna participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table uh, right at the entrance to the auditorium. You're welcome to go grab one of those. We don't have a moment during these last couple of songs where we all participate collectively at the same time. We wanna give space for you to meet with the Lord and, uh, and to partake of the bread and the cup when you're ready to do so. Uh, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. And, and as you prepare to receive of those elements this morning. As I've said week in and week out of this series, I, I trust that that meal will be sweet uh, as you partake of it 
knowing that Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile greedy people like you and me, accumulators and hoarders, by his grace that we might be brought into the eternal family of God.